You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Good morning, everyone. How we doing? Good. Uh, for all you introverts in the crowd, you may have noticed the timer was three minutes and not four. I don't know if you noticed that. Also, introverts, that was a test because you wouldn't have clapped and responded. So, <laughs> anywho, uh, I'm Jake, if I haven't met you yet. And in the theme of our series, our whole aim for this is for us to enjoy Jesus, that when we think about following Jesus, that sparks joy in us. Uh, this Today, before we get to the passage, I've got a fun, lighthearted thought experiment for us, for us to sort of like think through this passage this morning. Uh, this fun, lighthearted experiment goes something like this. Uh, suppose you're on a lifeboat with five other people in the middle of an ocean and you are stranded. Okay, just a very fun, like, I don't know how you got there. Okay, that's for you to figure out. But let's say in this lifeboat that you are, this boat is taking in water because you find out there's too many people on the lifeboat. And if just one of you gets out of the lifeboat, everyone will be saved. Again, like, this is just a very lighthearted, I don't know who designed this lifeboat. That's for you to figure out. And so you figure out between all of y'all, okay, someone has to go. And so everyone starts going around as to why they deserve to be on the lifeboat and survive. And you start going around and one person says, well, I'm a doctor, I'm dependent upon. Another person says, I'm a parent, I have young children who need me. And on and around it goes, and then it gets to you. What would you say in that moment? How would you prove to everyone that you deserve to belong? Why should you be allowed to stay on the lifeboat? Uh, The reason I share that little thought experiment, that very lighthearted thought experiment for us, is it sort of reveals why we think we matter. It begs the question, what do we think makes us worthy to ourselves and in front of others? And while my hope is none of y'all ever find yourselves in that situation, this idea of trying to prove ourselves is within us, and it is everywhere you look. Uh, Here's how you might see this show up. If someone were to ask you, hey, how are you doing this week? And you respond with, well, I am just so busy. Like my whole schedule is just jam-packed with all of this stuff. Uh, You may not realize it, but it is a low-key way of trying to prove to others that you matter, that you are valuable, that you are a person of importance, because look how busy you are. Uh, Here's how you might see this show up. Uh, Look how many people need me or depend on me. Look how important my skill set is. Look how big my salary is. Uh, Look how many followers I have on social media. Sometimes this idea of proving ourselves looks like playing the comparison game. Here's what I mean by that. Another thought experiment. How would you fill in the following statement? I know I'm not perfect, but at least I don't blank. How might you fill in that blank? Maybe you'd say, hey, I know I'm not perfect, but you know, at least I don't post crazy stuff on social media, okay? Uh, or maybe you say, hey, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I go to church. I try my best to like serve people, be an all-around nice guy. 
I remember when I was doing college ministry, I did that for a while. And we, whenever this question would get brought up, like 90% of the time, college students would, over a cup of coffee, say something to the effect of like, well, hey, I know I'm not perfect, but, you know, at least I haven't killed anybody. And it's like, whoa, is that... Is that the scale? Just anything short of murder? Wow. Okay. Good to know, guys. But the truth is, all of us, every single one of us, we tend to go throughout life performing as though we have in our heads this mental resume or this moral record that seems to justify our existence, to prove that we matter. And it may not always feel like it, but it's actually a broken search for what the Bible calls righteousness. It's a search to have some outside external voice look at us and say, hey, you are good. You are valuable. You deserve to belong here. To feel like all is well and right, we have this existential need to prove ourselves worthy and valuable before ourselves, before others, before God. In whatever form the lifeboat takes, what you are really searching for is a verdict to declare you righteous. And when we look at the scriptures this morning, what we're going to see is that underneath this universal human condition, that there is something broken and busted up inside of us. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 and 4. Would invite you to turn there. And I'll give you all a second. All right, Romans chapter 3. I'm going to be skimming a little bit in these couple chapters, but here the author of the letter, Paul, is addressing this church in Rome and their need to prove themselves and appear righteous. And here's what he says, starting at verse 10. He says, as it is written, and he's gonna be quoting a lot of Psalms here. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So, in case you haven't noticed, Paul is pretty direct. He's not a beat around the bush kind of guy. But just to get even darker here, he turns up the heat, verse 13. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. He's talking about the universal condition of all of humanity. And so if you're reading this, if you are in the church of Rome and feeling this need to like prove yourself and justify yourself, and you hear this letter from Paul being read out loud, it should sort of thwap you across the head as to how blunt Paul is being here. And I don't know about you, but even as I read this, my defenses go up and I think, whoa, Paul, that's super intense, man. Like, where are you getting this from? I'm a pretty nice guy. What are we talking about? But to help us understand what Paul is getting at, sort of this universal condition that all of mankind is broken, I've got an illustration that if my kids were in the room, they would be giggling right now. Uh, They're not. They're at Kid Town. But if they were here, they would be laughing this entire time. So again, uh, back to my college ministry days. Uh, The guy who mentored me, he often used props whenever he taught sermons. Y'all remember props in sermons? Uh, he gave this talk every single year, and every single year, he would bring out a tray of fresh brownies. He would, like, pull it from behind the drum set and say, I have a tray of fresh brownies. 
I need a volunteer to come eat a brownie for me. And there's a couple hundred college kids and hands shoot up. And he says, all right, you come up to the front. And all right, uh, he's, he gets the, the tray of brownies, puts it on a plate and says, all right, you're going to eat this brownie. But hey, before you eat this brownie, I will just let you know, just real quick, this is a fresh batch of brownies I made at my house. But as I was making the batter, I went to my backyard and I found some dog poop and I picked it up and I put it in the batter. Would you like some brownies now? And everyone starts freaking out in the crowd, like, ew, gross, no, of course not, ew, gross. And he would get really defensive. He'd say, hey, it's just a little bit, guys. Like, I have, my dog is like, he's not a big dog, and it's an organic diet I give him. He has a very fibrous diet. It's just a little bit. And everyone's freaking out, like, no, of course not, ew. Uh, And every single time, he would ask, so do you want the brownie now? They would say, no, of course not. The whole thing is ruined now. And there would always be, you know, the one college guy trying to look cool in front of everyone, like, yeah, I'll still do it. It's like, get out of here, man. Stop. Stop. But the whole point was, it doesn't matter how little it is, the whole thing is ruined. All right, now bringing this to the text, when we talk about what makes a person good or righteous, it all depends on the scale that you're using and what you're comparing it to. So if the scale is the people you see on the news or on social media posting crazy things, if that's what defines a good person or not, then you might think of yourself as a good person, a righteous human being, because at least you're not doing that stuff. But if the scale we're using is God's perfect moral standard, then it doesn't matter how good you are compared to the people you see on Twitter or the news. Compared to God's moral perfection, what he calls good and righteous all of us are going to fall infinitely short of that. So when Paul is talking about the sinful state of humanity in Romans 3, he doesn't use the language of good people. He says that sin has infected and affected every single part of us. Every single part of us as human beings, categorically speaking, uh, is tainted by sin. The way you might say a little bit of dog poop spoils a whole tray of brownies. There's sin inside all of us, and that for some of us, it's a little more easily hidden than others. Some it's overt, others it's more subtle. But the truth is, all of us have within us this same rotten sickness within our souls. And if you keep reading along in Romans 3, Paul is going to talk about the role of the law, which is a shorthanded way of talking about the 613 moral instructions in the first five books of the Old Testament known as the Torah in Judaism. And obeying the Torah was supposed to function to God's people as a picture and a roadmap of what human flourishing and human wholeness looks like. And to give you some background, with the Roman church, you have people from Greek backgrounds and Jewish backgrounds trying to boast in their own worthiness and righteousness and why they ought to look better compared to everyone else in the church. So for the Greeks, they boast in their wisdom and their virtue, saying like, hey, we're all Christians now, but look at us. Like, look at all this wisdom and virtue we have from our past life. Meanwhile, you've got folks from a Jewish background who just became Christians, and they're saying, hey, sure, I mean, we're all Christians now, but look at us. Look at our history. We have the Torah. So if God should really think of anyone more highly than the other, it ought to be us to which Paul is trying to settle this arguing and this bickering between these two groups of people. He says, yo, not so fast. Verse 19, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every 
mouth may be stopped. I love that image. Just when we want to rush to our defenses as to why we think we are good and worthy, we look to the law and we realize we have no room to talk. It's a standard that on our own we cannot possibly live up to. Keep reading with me, verse 19. And the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, the human condition, it's this incessant need to prove ourselves and to justify our existence to ourselves and to others and to God. And when you look at the law, you see that no one is righteous. No one is worthy or good enough. It's not like when we die that there's a cosmic scale that weighs in the balance. And if you just have enough good deeds that outweigh your bad deeds, then you will be declared righteous and a good person. Like, I don't know if you ever saw Moon Knight. It just came out. but That was like a big thing about good deeds outweighing outweighing the bad deeds. That's not how the Bible works. That's not it. Because there is sin within us keeping us from living out the law. And because we have this sin within us that we cannot remove and on our own, everything is broken and busted and ruined. There is no good person. There is dog poop in the metaphorical brownies, if you will. Last time I'm going to use that illustration. But it's effective. You're going to remember that. So Paul paints this bleak picture of the human condition and he gives us the bad news. And then he shifts towards some good news. Romans 3.28. He says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So here's the solution to the problem. We are justified. We are made righteous and worthy, not by adherence or our attempt to adhere to this perfect moral standard, but we are made righteous by faith. So the question becomes, what is faith? Faith in the Greek is the word pistis, and it means trust or allegiance or loyalty to someone or something. It's this orientation of the heart to rely on something outside of you. This comes straight out of Hebrews 11 verse 1. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, biblical faith is trusting God to do something you cannot see on your own. It's relying on him to do something that you cannot do on your own. And to get this idea across in Romans chapter 4, Paul is going to use this Old Testament character named Abraham to get this idea across. So in the Old Testament, there's a guy named Abraham, and in Genesis chapter 12, he's this wandering shepherd, which at the time was like the least noticeable, reputable job you could have in the ancient Near East. He doesn't own any land, he doesn't own any possessions, and all around him there are kings and empires going to war with each other, vying for power and prestige. And God says to Abraham in the middle of nowhere, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Do you see all these other nations at war with each other, all these empires around you? The people, the nation, the family that I'm going to raise up through you will one day rule over all of them. And Abraham is wide-eyed, and he's thinking, are you sure about that? Because at that time, Abraham was 75 years old. He's past his prime, not to mention he has no kids at all. So Abraham's thinking, look, God, that's great and all, but I'm past my prime. I'm a shepherd. I own nothing. And I don't know if you've noticed, I don't have any kids. My family reunions, it's just me hanging out, right? To which God responds, I'm aware of the fact, and soon enough, you're going to have a son. 
and that son will be your heir, and through your future kids, one day they will rule over everything. And in Genesis 15, God directs his attention to the stars in the night sky and says, you see, try to count all the stars in the sky that you see. That's how many offspring you're going to have. And in one of the most pivotal passages in the entire Bible, in Genesis 15, 6, that Paul quotes in Romans 4, 3, it says, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So in that moment, something wild happens. This man with no hope or power to do on his own, uh, God was calling him to do this. Abraham believed or had faith that God was gonna do what he said he was gonna do. And in that moment, Abraham is declared righteous. In other words, Abraham is deemed worthy and valuable in the sight of God because he trusts in God's promises. Abraham trusts in the faithfulness of God and that God is gonna do what Abraham cannot do on his own power. And if you wanna get technical with it, the theological term for this is imputed righteousness. This idea that through faith, we are deemed worthy. We are declared righteous, not by any action of ours, but that we've been gifted with this righteousness through trusting that God says that what God says is true and that it will come to pass, that who God is, we trust that who he says he is, he is, and he will do what he says he will do. When I believe and orient my heart to trust God in his promises, when I trust that he is faithful to deliver on his promises, then I am declared in his eyes righteous, valuable, important, worthy. And this has been God's MO from the Old Testament to the New. It's always been justification by faith, not by works. So back to Romans 4, just to dispel any semblance or notion of being good enough for God, Paul makes very clear in these verses that righteousness cannot be earned. Faith cannot be earned. This is what he's trying to make crystal clear in Romans chapter 4, verse 4. He says, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So the logic goes, if someone works for something, then they get paid for it. They've earned it, but that's not gift righteousness. That's purchased righteousness. And he's made so clear in the last couple chapters, you cannot earn your righteousness. He says, not by any works of ours, in verse five, not by any work, but by faith are we counted righteous. So faith is not a work, it's an anti-work. It's the opposite of work. It's the act of asking or trusting someone else to work on your behalf. To drive the point home even further, skip on down to verse 23 of chapter four. Here's what Paul says. He says, but the words, it was counted to him, and he's quoting Genesis 15 and earlier in the verse, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from Jesus from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The predicament Abraham faced was this uh, metaphor or model of the predicament we all face. We in Adam have a problem that we are utterly incapable of solving. We are unrighteous compared to God's perfect standard. We are sinful. We are broken. We are busted. There is a sickness lingering in our souls, and you can try your hardest to get it out, but you cannot. 
Your worthiness, your value cannot be purchased by doing enough good things for God or comparing yourself to others or anything like that. Rather, you too can be like Abraham and become righteous through faith by trusting in the one who has all the power and goodness and righteousness and worth. You too can be like Abraham the moment you stop trying to earn your place or earn your keep and instead to start trusting in the one who can do alone what you cannot do by your own self-effort. You too, in that moment that you trust, will be declared righteous. And you can try to compare yourself to people worse than you, but when it's all said and done, you know and I know that there is unrighteousness in your veins, in your thoughts, in your motivations. And at the end of the day, we are really left with only two options for how to deal with this innate problem that's within all of us. Option one is you can try and save yourself. You can try and save yourself. Maybe you try to obey as much of the Bible as you can, and you put your trust that when you die one day that there is some cosmic scale and that the good will outweigh the bad. Maybe you downplay the church game and you try to seek out your righteousness through politics or through social media or activism. You find a group that believes the same things as you, who ignore all the blatant weaknesses and attack the opposite side as hard as you can, trying to, establishing, trying to establish yourself as good and the rest of everyone else as evil. This is basically all forms of social media and the news cycle. All the while, you realize you can never stop striving to prove yourself, to prove you are good enough, that you have what it takes that you aren't a waste of space because the fact of the matter is it is never enough if you play that game. Option number two is that you have faith in the one who can save you. You realize the righteousness you need is not one you can earn by your behavior or by your group affiliation, but one that has to be gifted to you. So you, in the spirit of Abraham, you throw your chips into the bucket of anti-work, anti-trust in yourself. How's that for a bumper sticker? I know that wouldn't like jive at all. Anti-trust in yourself. And you can say, Jesus, you alone are my righteousness. You are my one and only shot. Will you forgive me? Will you cleanse me? Will you gift me with your perfect spotless righteousness? To where you can say, I know I'm not perfect but I have the righteousness of Christ. And when you do, if you do that, in that moment, a cosmic transaction takes place that defies all possibilities and language. Think of the worst things that you have ever done, the things you are most ashamed of, the things that you try your hardest to hide, the feeling, the stain that's left on your mind and your soul. And in the blink of an eye, when you trust in Jesus, when you orient your heart towards who he is and what he says over you, all of that contamination is gone because Jesus takes it all for you on the cross. Jesus, who perfectly fulfills the law, who alone is worthy and full of righteousness, he takes on your unrighteousness when he dies for sin and through faith, he gives you his righteousness instead to where now when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin-soaked soul. He sees the perfect spotless righteousness of Jesus instead. It's as if a robe dropped out of heaven 
and covered you to where now you are fully, completely gifted and imputed and covered with and soaked in and shielded by the righteousness of Christ now. His righteousness encircles you somehow, in some way, in some miraculous fashion. Your faith is counted to you as righteousness. And I am tempted uh, to just go ahead and stop there and close in prayer to have a sing because I do love a short sermon. However, a couple application points before we close today. My first thought is, I worry that for some of us here, you haven't placed your faith in Jesus yet. Maybe you haven't and you know it, or maybe you're here this morning and you've been saying to yourself, oh, dang, well, I thought I was a Christian because my whole family went to church and I've grown up in the church, but I realize I haven't actually been trusting in Jesus. I've more been on the side of, I hope I'm a really good person. And if that's you, I just wanna draw your attention to the invitation that's being made available to you today that you have this heart-level problem, you have this eternal problem in your soul, one that you cannot fix on your own, that you are like Abraham, completely powerless and hopeless on your own, and God in Christ has come to you even right now, and he has said, I have solved this problem in your soul, only I can fix it, I can make you righteous today. So I plead with you, if that is you, to respond in faith this morning. Ask Jesus to save you, to forgive you, to give you his perfect righteousness. And then if you do that, to take communion this morning, to celebrate the fact that you are a part of something bigger and greater than you, that you are now part of God's family and you are clothed in his righteousness forever. And second, for Christians in the room who at some point, maybe in an instant, or maybe it was more of a process where you placed your faith in Jesus, I hope today is a fresh reminder of what has happened on your behalf. Because the way the Bible tends to phrase this in our Western modern culture, we don't really have the best language to really think through this. And honestly, when you look at how the Bible talks about it, it's more akin to something out of like Narnia or Lord of the Rings. Here's what I mean by this. Uh, The prophet Isaiah says this, He says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. For those of you in Christ, as you go throughout your work week this week, as you wake up tomorrow morning and start your work week or whatever, as you parent your kids, as you go through the routines of your day, as you eat your meals, as you battle your thoughts, as you go to bed each night, do you see the robes that you are wearing in Christ? I don't know if you do, but the spotless, righteous robe that's blanketed over you in Christ is beautiful and radiant. And I don't care what you did last week. I don't care what you said in that argument with your spouse this weekend or what you need to apologize for. I don't care what's on your browser history. I don't care what you said to your kid this morning when you were frustrated. If you are in Christ, do you see the robe that you are wearing? Because if you are in Christ, that robe is still on and it's as pure as it has ever been. And that royal shine of the robe of righteousness that covers you will not be dented or stained in the slightest. And it will be just as pure and as radiant as ever 10,000 years from now when you are worshiping before the throne forever. This means at your best days or even at your absolute 
worst days. God in Christ sees you as righteous and valuable and worthy to where even if you woke up this morning with so much joy in your heart, to where you even like woke up just fully alert before your alarm ever went off and you just had all of this joy flooding your heart and you were just so in tune with Jesus these last couple hours and it just felt like you were levitating. Like that's just how in love with Jesus and others you are. Or even if you woke up grouchy and you hit the snooze several times over, or if you're apathetic, or you're hungover from the night before, and you feel the weight of what you did, or you feel the weight of your past, or one day just seems to blur into the next, or that God can often feel completely distant from you. As wild as it is, for those who, put, who place their faith in Jesus, who are in Christ, the imputed righteousness of Christ means that at the very end of the good day or at the end of the worst day you've ever had, God sees you exactly the same. You are covered with the same righteousness after each of those days. Do you see the robes that you are wearing? Because if you are in Christ, you are righteous, case closed. That's who you are. And that means we can come here confidently to pray and to worship and sing praises to our God because he has made us righteous. We are robed in the righteousness of Jesus. So let's draw near with confidence and don't let your failure hold you back. Let's come boldly before the throne of grace that we all need because the pressure to perform is off. The pressure to prove yourself is off. So Christian, no matter where you've been, let's draw near to him knowing that you are covered in a righteousness that you could not earn and that no one can ever take away from you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.